the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. My life's experience is not necessarily reflective of the true character of God. And neither is yours. We can't allow things externally to shape our view of God. We have to allow God to communicate who he is. And then even when life seems really confusing, we fall back on this is what God says. And so I take God at his word and I trust this is who God is, irrespective of how great or how difficult my life is. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary's current message series is Answers to the Questions You Thought We Missed. A lot of time we allow our experiences in life to shape our impression of God's character. We might have a wonderful life and think of God as Santa Claus always bringing us gifts, or things might really be a struggle leading us to think God is harsh and uncaring. But to truly know who God is, we need to look to Scripture. Today, Pastor Gary encourages us to rely on what the Bible says is true of God's character. We need to see who God says He is in the Bible, rather than relying on the external factors in our life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message, God's Character. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give a bit of a background first to how can we know God's character and uh, what is God's character, and then I'm going to actually tackle several of the questions you had submitted on this topic, and then I'm going to try to watch the clock and allow the last 10 or 15 minutes for you to be able to text an additional question, maybe to clarify something that I said, because that's not uncommon that I need to clarify better something that I say. So, going back to the first premise of this discussion, does everyone's life experience and circumstances shape one's view of God and his character? The answer is yes. So, take for example, if you have experienced a lot of difficulty in your life, you've experienced a lot of heartache in your life, you've experienced a lot of disappointment or a lot of loss, you could tend then to view God in terms of his character as one who is either detached or uncaring or aloof, or worse, that God's character is one of punishing 
And that that's why you've experienced what you've experienced. You've gone through difficulty and trials and heartache because God either doesn't care or he's trying to punish you. I run into conversations with people who ask me pastorally, you know, help me make sense of this. I run into it. And so the view then typically is that God is just, he's either very indifferent to what I'm going through or he's just really mean and he's like judge judy on steroids you know it's just like you know he's just really a judge who just wants to punish me and is angry with me okay so that becomes a view and life circumstance can shape one's view in that way but the opposite is true too if you've had a life that is relatively because it's it's all relative if you've had a life that has relatively been a life that's been good life has been firing on all cylinders it, you just seem to have the Midas touch. Everything you touch, you know, your business is successful, your kids are great, you know, life is just wonderful. You can also then have this view of God like he's Santa Claus. God always shows up to give you gifts and a fun time. And so, depending on where you're coming from and, and what you've experienced in life, you can have a view of God. And I've given the extremes. It can be either this indifferent angry God who is punishing you or at least uncaring about you or you can have this view of God that he's you know super nice always blessing me everything is a gift and because I haven't really experienced any troubles or trials and it must be that I'm doing something right and that God is just this wonderful you know vending machine in the sky or Santa Claus so you have those extremes now you know life for the most part is somewhere in the middle of that For the most part, there are obviously some people who are under tremendous burdens and heartaches, and there are other people that seem to be very carefree because they just haven't experienced much tragedy or hardship in their lives. For most of us, it's somewhere in the middle. We have our share of good days. We have our share of bad days. We have our share of wonderful times. We have our share of real heartache. So the key is, in understanding God's character, not so much... What does the lens of my life experience say about God? But what does God say about God? And for that, we have to understand some things that Scripture says relative to his character and his nature. Now, I'm going to give you just seven. I'm going to rattle it off pretty quickly. It isn't to say that God's character is limited to these seven. But I'm just going to give us seven as kind of a starting point. What does the Bible say about God's character? We have to allow the true account of God speak to us about God. And my life's experience is not necessarily reflective of the true character of God. And neither is yours. We can't allow things externally to shape our view of God. We have to allow God to communicate who he is. And then even when life seems really confusing we fall back on this is what God says and so I take God as at his word and I trust this is who God is irrespective of how great or how difficult my life is okay does everybody get this this is important I'm going to share seven things about God's character and I'm going to give you the reference but I'm going to actually read them to you so the first one is out of Psalm 107 uh, verse 1 and David says give thanks to the Lord for he is good his love endures forever That's what that verse says. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. One of the most important things about understanding God's character is that he is good and that he is loving. And one of the biggest lies 
that Satan will try to convince you of is that God is not good. That was the main tool he took out of his toolbox back in the Garden of Eden. When he tried to convince Adam and Eve, did God really say God is not good? That was the main lie that Satan will always try to convince you of, that God is not good. Because if you can buy that, if you can buy into that lie, that it will skew your whole thinking about God in general. So God is good and God is loving. Those are the first two things. Now here's another verse out of Daniel 9, 9. Daniel said, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. So two more important things about his character, that he is merciful and that he is forgiving. How many are thankful that he's merciful and forgiving? Yes? Amen. Amen. Then we have another couple that we pick up out of Revelation 15, verse 3. John sees this vision of of the multitude of saints around the throne of God along with the angels, and it says this, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. So number five and six on the list is that God is just and God is true. And then the last one that I want to share with you is out of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. Isaiah sees this vision around the throne of God also, and he sees the angels around the throne, and they are declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only word that is used in triplets about God in the Bible is the word holy spoken of here in Isaiah, it's repeated again in Revelation. So God is a holy God. So here's just seven to kind of at least give us a a bit of a foundation to work from. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is loving. Number three, God is merciful. Number four, God is forgiving. Number five, God is just. Number six, God is true. And number seven, God is holy. Now, along with properly understanding God's character and how to make sense of our world, one must also understand that we live in a fallen world. Some of the answers I'm going to give you to the questions you submitted have everything to do with the fact that we live in a world that is dominated, not sovereignly so, but in a limited way, by Satan. When Satan rebelled from God and was kicked out of heaven, the earth became his playground. And God kicked him out of heaven to the earth, and Satan's influence in the earth and man's sin and rebellion in combination has created an earth, a world that is fallen. By that I mean it is filled with sin, evil, disease, distress, all kinds of sins, right? And this, this is that world. It's pain-filled. It's burdensome. It's filled with trials, difficulty, sin. It's all, it's all of this. And it's the result of our living in a fallen world. Satan is called ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's called prince of the world. And uh, Jesus called him prince of this world in John 12.31. He's called the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And in 1 John 5.19, it says we know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, that is not to say that, that Satan rules the world completely. God is still sovereign. But it does mean that God, in his infinite wisdom, has allowed Satan to operate in this world within certain boundaries. Now, when you understand both of these combined, God's character, who he is, 
and how he's reflected really through all of the Bible, not just the few verses I gave you, and the fact that we live in a fallen world, these things will help us to understand and make sense better of the world in which we live. So with all that in mind, let me dive into some of the questions that you all submitted. Now, some of these questions I'm going to are actually grouped together. So for example, here's two that are very similar. If God is loving... Why did or does he turn hearts away from him? Example, Pharaoh and Judas. I understand the thinking for his will, but what about those whose hearts and souls are now eternally damned? He could have accomplished his will without those people. And then someone else also asked in a similar way, why do you think God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Okay, so for those of you who don't necessarily understand, you have two guys in a Bible, and the question is around Pharaoh and Judas. Two guys that God used to accomplish his purpose, and in the end it didn't go well for Pharaoh or Judas. Part of God's character. How could he use guys like this and, you know, now they're eternally condemned? A couple things to understand. You know, Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth at the time, the Jews were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It does say between Exodus 7 and 14 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart ten times. But it also says within those same chapters that Pharaoh hardened his own heart four times. In other words, God does not supersede one's will, but he will use one's will for his purposes. And so you already have a man like Pharaoh who is stubborn, he's resistant against God, he has rejected God. Moses the prophet has come to declare who God is. Pharaoh continues to reject, Pharaoh continues to harden his own heart, and thus then God will harden Pharaoh's heart to bend Pharaoh the way Pharaoh's heart is already bent for the purposes of God. He does not interfere with man's will, but he will often use man's will. The same thing with Judas. God used Judas, yes, but God bent Judas according to how Judas's heart was already bent. The Bible says, I think it's John chapter 12, that uh, Judas was already helping himself as the keeper of the money bag. Because Jesus, you know, for three years, he just was basically an itinerant preacher, an evangelist. You know, he's the son of God, but he's going around the countryside preaching the good news of the gospel. And so they had people who would support the ministry of Jesus, and Judas was the one who kept the money. Well, the Bible says that Judas used to help himself to the money bag. And so whenever Judas would help himself to the money, he was a thief. The Bible calls him a thief. So guess who's the one who will take 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus? The thief. And so it's not like God comes in and says, well, Judas, you innocent dude, you, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to just eternally condemn you and use you to betray uh, Jesus. Judas was already predisposed. He was already a thief. It was no stretch for him to take money to betray Jesus. So God sovereignly will use situations and people to accomplish his purposes, not in violation of their will, but actually in using their bent for his purposes. Someone else also asked the question, how do I answer the question, if God loves us, why does he let me go through pain? And that's a tough question. Look, there are a multitude of answers to that question. I'm going to just give you, you know, brief examples But I can't specifically tell you, and this obviously also is, again, from a Christian point of view. If you're trying to witness to a non-Christian, say, here's why God allows you to go through pain. It's not going to make sense. Because, again, we have to evaluate life through the lens of Scripture and what God says about himself. So when I look at Scripture and I realize, okay, certain things like God is good. 
And irrespective of my circumstances, I trust that God is good and that God supremely is always about accomplishing things for his glory and for my ultimate good. That is always what God is about, accomplishing things for his glory and my ultimate good. When I rest on that, even when there's pain in my life, I have to trust that he's bringing something out of that. I may not always understand it. I may not even be able to explain it. But I'm going to fall back and rest on the character of God. That he's good and he only accomplishes things for his glory and for my ultimate good. So in that, I'm going to trust him. Listen, even though there may not be this tangible result of, oh, here's here's the good thing that God brought out of this. If as a follower of Christ, our hearts are yielded to God, at the very least, my pain is going to draw me closer to him. C.S. Lewis once said, God speaks to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. You know, I hear God when things are going good, you know, in the pleasurable days, but I really hear him. In fact, C.S. Lewis went on to say, our pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so sometimes the pain that we experience is actually to draw us closer to the Lord, even though we may not see any particular good other than that, but that's Even that is good for us to bring us closer to him. This is a tough one as it relates to God's character, but three questions that are very similar. In 1 Samuel 15, why does an all-loving God tell King Saul to kill all the men, women, and their children in Gilgal? Another question along these lines, why does God tell people to kill when the Ten Commandments says that thou shalt not kill? Here's another question, why did God have a chosen people, and why did God give them the okay to destroy other people in his name? Okay, so there's a lot in all that. By the way, in regards to the Ten Commandments question, there is a different, there's a difference, not just doctrinally, but linguistically in the Bible and the Hebrew between murder and kill. Not all killing is wrong, murder is, but sometimes in the course of executing justice, in fact, even in the New Testament, it talks in Romans 13 about government doesn't bear the sword for nothing, you know, but it is to punish the evildoer. There's even, you know, room within the context of working for, your, for government, serving in the military, being a police officer, where you kill on the line of duty or you kill as part of what is required, you know, as far as the government is concerned. That's different from murder, and the word in the Ten Commandments is actually the word for murder. And that's talking about this angry, you know, either premeditated or second-degree murder, you know, when you're just taking the life of an individual senselessly. So there's some differences there. But this is a complicated question. Now, for those of you who might be taking notes, there's a passage in Genesis chapter 15 where God speaks to Abraham in advance of the Jews going into slavery in Egypt. And God tells Abraham in advance, here's what's going to happen And God just prophetically tells Abraham, your descendants are going to end up as slaves in another land for 400 years. Now, it's not that God willed that. Don't confuse God's foreknowledge with God being fatalistic. Okay, God knows all things. And so when God says some things in advance, it doesn't mean that he has predetermined those things necessarily. Sometimes it can be. But sometimes it's just he's saying in advance what's going to happen. And he tells Abraham in advance about 600 years, about 550 years before the Jews actually become slaves in Egypt, that your descendants, Abraham, will be slaves to another country, and even tells them in advance for 400 years. Then God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, when I deliver them and they go back to their promised land, 
they're going to be wiping out people. And God adds, but the reason why he's waiting those 400 years is Genesis 15, verse 16. He says, in the the fourth generation, your descendants will come back. A generation in those days was 100 years, not like us today, which is like 40 years. He says, in the fourth generation, 400 years later, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's a very interesting verse. What God basically says is, I'm going to allow 400 years for the Amorites to get right with me. I mean, how patient does God have to be before he just kills us all? Because we deserve death. We deserve punishment. We've offended God. We've all rebelled against God. God says, I'm going to give the Amorites 400 years to get right with me. But in advance, he knows it hasn't reached its full measure. There is a full measure where we press the limits of God's patience. And therefore, you do see in the Bible where God terminates, in the Old Testament, God terminates people groups, or nations, because their sin has reached its full measure. Hang with me on this, because I'm going to get to the New Testament understanding of all this. But you see Genesis 18 and 19, he wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. You see in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says the Amalekites, another group of people, their sin has reached its full potential. He says to King Saul, I want you to kill him. This is God's execution of judgment. Now, Saul actually rebels against the Lord, and he keeps the best of the sheep and the cattle, and he spares the king of the Amalekites, King Agag. And Samuel the prophet shows up, and he's like, I think God told you to kill all the Amalekites. What's going on with all the sheep and the cattle? And Saul's like, I, I, didn't, I didn't take any sheep. I didn't take any cattle. And all of a sudden, in the background, there's moo! And bah! And Samuel's like, well, what's that sound I hear? You know, you didn't follow the Lord's instruction. So... It's hard for us to understand, but if we recognize that all of our sin deserves death and punishment, then it makes more sense when we realize that God in his patience waited hundreds of years until finally he said enough is enough. Now the same is true in the New Testament, except that where you have justice revealed in the Old Testament, you have mercy revealed in the New Testament. We are just as deserving of his justice, but God puts in motion a redemptive plan by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross so that we don't have to experience his justice. But we deserve the same execution of judgment as they did in the Old Testament. It's just we see the display of God, his justice in the Old Testament, his mercy in the New Testament, but it's all part of the justice towards sin. These questions came together. Why do we need to fear God? Why not respect And then uh, this other question along those lines, what does it look like to have a healthy fear of God? We need to have a healthy fear of God. I always refer to the great hymn, Amazing Grace, because I think John Newton understood the right fear of God when he talked about to his grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved, that there's a difference between having this reverential, awesome fear of God and then being like afraid of him. It's a great motivator to keep us from sin when we realize that God is holy and just and righteous. There should be this aspect of, and the person uses the word respect. I would say respect is a great word, just ratchet it up. 
we can have respect and then we can show disrespect, but a fear of God is unlike anything else and any other person that we should so esteem, but it at the same time should not be something that drives us. You know, people who have this fear of God, like he didn't get his cup of coffee in the morning, you know, that's just a wrong view of God. He's Father God, he's not the Godfather. Okay? Um, but we still need to understand that we should have a healthy fear of God. We'd like to spend more time with you today on Cornerstone Connection, but sadly, we've run out of time. If you missed part of today's message or would like to explore more from this series, you can do so at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Subscribe to our podcast while you're there so you never miss another edition of Cornerstone Connection. You can even take these teachings with you on the go when you download our mobile app. Life is busy, and sometimes fitting in a quiet time becomes a challenge. Well, with the Cornerstone Connection mobile app, you can turn on biblically-based teachings wherever you are, whenever you have the opportunity. Find a link under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc. The questions Pastor Gary has been tackling in this series are ones that are important, especially in today's world. Each topic affects not only how we view the world, but also how we interact with the Creator of it and of us. Do you still have questions about what you heard in today's message? If so, we'd like the opportunity to speak with you and pray with you. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again is 703-771-1500. Thanks for tuning in today to Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.